Today's episode of Lions of Liberty is brought to you by MathBot.com. MathBot.com is a fun little game that fills a serious hole that the public and even the private schools miss, and that is knowledge of programming and the math behind programming. MathBot.com gives parents a much-needed tool to make sure their children don't fall behind in this new information age. Software is eating the world, and those who don't know how to code will be left behind as more and more jobs become automated. MathBot.com gives kids and even adults Adults like me, the knowledge needed to thrive in this new world. MathBot may just seem like a fun and simple game, but behind the scenes, it uses the same method Julius Caesar, Isaac Newton, Einstein, and everyone else were all taught math before the state got its greasy hands into education. This method goes all the way back to classical Greece, the dawn of civilization. MathBot will gradually upload the math and logical skills needed to understand programming into the mind of any player. It's said that the pen is mightier than the sword, but now code is even mightier than the pen. So become mighty and learn to code over at mathbot.com. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hello, 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 and welcome back to... Your favorite libertarian podcast that you are currently listening to. That's right. It's Lions of Liberty, and this is our flagship program where every single Monday I host interviews with some of the greatest minds in the libertarian movement, like the one you're going to hear today. I often also host roundtable discussions over a few adult beverages like we did last week in our very popular segment that we like to call Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor. Be sure to check that out. We did a nice little President's Day special drunkenly discussing the best and worst presidents through the libertarian lens. So be sure to click back in your feed to episode 388 and check that out. And that, of course, means that this is the 389th episode of the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, which means you can find today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 389. It's not just me here, though, at Lions of Liberty. We have the greatest libertarian podcast variety show you have ever rewarded your ears by listening to. And the variety comes in starting on Wednesdays, where Brian McWilliams brings you his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. And we, we even seem to have uh, spinoffs within spinoffs now, because Brian is now also producing the hilarious audio piece of comedic brilliance known as Do Nothing Man. That is a new series that is going to be exclusively for our patrons. But there will, I believe, if he is feeling kind... Be a special preview coming out soon uh, for the regulars, the normies out here. Of course, we don't just beg and plead for you to come over to Patreon and send us money and help support and grow this program. We reward you. We see it as a free market exchange, and we give you a ton, a ton, and I really do mean a ton of bonus content. Brian's show, Do Nothing Man, tons of bonus segments with guests. I'll hop in there and do Ask Me Anythings all the time. Uh, we also have, let's see, the League of Liberty podcast with myself, Chris Bengel, Roger Paxton, and Johnny Adams of Blast off as well as a, a rival program known as the Legion of Liberty Doom. This will all make so much more sense to you if you just check out our Patreon for as little as $5 a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. But back to this program, because we don't have enough to promote here. Back to this program, I also want to make sure you do check out John Odermatt every single Friday with his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. This show is always hard-hitting and is an absolute can't miss. You get all this stuff, at least the uh, the three main programs, for free, three days a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, by clicking that subscribe button. Without further ado, friends, 
Let's get to my much-awaited guest today. My guest today is the editor-at-large at Reason Magazine. He is one of the hosts of the excellent podcast called The Fifth Column. His writing has been seen in the LA Times as well as many other publications over the years. While he has also appeared as a pundit on MSNBC and other mainstream media outlets, including a run as the co-host of the very sadly now-defunct The Independence on Fox Business. I met him very briefly at the LNC last June, but I'm very pleased to welcome him here to Lions of Liberty for the very first time he is the one and only Matt Welch. Matt, are you ready to roar? That was a that was a gamble to see whether that thing was in tune. It's <laughs> close enough. It's close that was enough. the that was the first instrumental affirmation of roaring I've ever gotten. I'm yeah. very impressed. And I've had I had Jordan Page on the show a couple weeks ago, and even he didn't strum a guitar. So yeah. very impressed. Very impressed. Here for it. <laughs> All right, Matt. So, uh, you know, why don't we start out at the beginning since your first time on the show here? When did your political views uh, sort of first begin to take shape and how do they evolve that you now find yourself embracing the term libertarian, serving as the editor at large at Reason Magazine? Take us on a little bit of this journey here. So I was I'm from Southern California in the aerospace belt. My dad was an aerospace engineer. My stepdad was an aerospace engineer. And so I kind of grew up in the the beautiful fiery sun of the late Cold War and had as an intrinsic value that commies sucked uh, and uh, Ruski commies were the worst. So, and that capitalism was a, a, a great and good thing. And even, even though I wouldn't put it this way, kind of a, a moral good, like it's a better way to, to have things organized and not having the state in the middle of everything. And that was kind of in the water where, where I drank. I probably started to become a little bit more politically aware as a teenager when I kind of worked way, my way back through the uh, new journalism of the 1960s and the early 1970s, kind of Hunter Thompson, Tom Wolfe, a lot of the anti-authoritarian, super creative, very independent bent and civil libertarian minded journalism there, which got me into the kind of politics and great disillusionments that happened in the 60s and 70s. Of course, I'm born in 1968, so it's a lot of this is science fiction to me. And, you know, recent science fiction, but uh, still nonetheless. And I was fascinated by it. And this kind of got me into these, these areas of thought. Uh, I the civil libertarian, like Nat Hentoff, the Village Voice, of the 1980s, I read when I was working at my college newspaper, that always made the most sense to me of just, hey, look, you know, the ends don't justify the means. Here is how you have to do it. Defend the Nazis' right to march, the bastards, the, you know, uh, they're a bunch of a-holes, but uh, you have to defend the right to march. That's how we do it on a constitutional system if we're going to take this stuff seriously. That always made a ton of sense to me. So this was kind of my my built-in set of uh, values as uh, 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old. And then uh, in uh, 1990, at about the time that I would have graduated from college if I had not been expelled for bad grades, I decided, uh, and so did a lot of my friends, to uh, move to Central Europe, which had just uh, opened up uh, for the first time. It was a, you know, an undifferentiated black hole for my entire childhood. And then suddenly everything changes, communism collapses, there are these countries that we'd never heard of before opening up and they're beautiful and they're great. Let's go look at them and, and roll around. So <laughs> I was fortunate enough. Uh, and that's really an understatement to move out of that part of the world nine months after the Berlin wall fell and uh, ended up in Prague, ended up starting the region's first independent uh, post-communist uh, English language newspaper with some friends. And so I saw the wreckage 
of totalitarianism and of communism and covered that and covered those transitions up close, uh, which got me into other writings of especially Václav Havel, but also just kind of the anti-authoritarian, anti-totalitarian writings of Central Europe, which had a huge profound impact on me. And so, and, and as did the notion that, uh, and this is kind of a, a, a paradox, that uh, ideology is oftentimes your enemy, not your friend. And this is a, something I've been grappling with uh, in my life as a libertarian. It's because libertarianism is an ideology. So how do you deal with that? Do you, do you mean that sort of uh, from a journalistic perspective or just uh, just in a, in a perspective overall of trying to communicate with people in the world, your ideology is sort of always going to butt its way in there and, and cause issues? Journalistic for the most part. You know, I, as soon as I took one step into my college newspaper in September of 1986, the age of 18, I was like, OK, I got it. This is what I'm doing. And so I've been fascinated with the concept of truth. Václav Havel put it as living in truth or living within the truth. And he was constantly talking about this. George Orwell, who's a a big influence on Havel and and also on me and and everyone else, was always talking about this, the distorting lens of ideology and on kind of a will to power that causes people uh, to lose their own sense of, you know, being able to to accurately point out the nose in front of your own face in Orwell's uh, phrasing, but also the way that that gets used by statist and totalitarian systems to enforce orthodoxy and obedience among captive populations. These are, you know, these are the great questions of kind of 20th century anti-totalitarian thought and writing. And so that had a very strong influence on me. I come back to the States in 98, and I start uh, uh, gravitating towards libertarian orbits, partly because I just I couldn't believe that we had won the Cold War without ever having like had a uh, a truth and reconciliation commission among ourselves, the people who were <laughs> who were fighting amongst each, uh, each other over the, the Cold War all those years. You know, lefties were bad apologists for Sandinistas and righties were bad apologists for for, you know, South Africa apartheid regime. And you thought there'd be like, hey, you know what? Sorry, my bad. I, I went too far in this direction. And, oh, you know what? I went too far. None of that happened. So Maybe I came we can back. all relax and get along now. Uh, or, you know, or, or like like do a searing sense of uh, self-inventory and say, where were my habits of mind wrong? Where did I injure another person? Or where did I, where did I uh, uh, misrepresent people? Where did I make a mistake? As a journalist, I'm constantly haunted about this. What, what if I am wrong? You know, what if, I, what if this one word, this description is wrong? This terrifies me. And, and I was uh, disappointed to see that in American politics, none of that work was happening. And so I gravitated over towards libertarians. And this is where, you know, like, oh, wait, well, this is an ideology too. But part of, <laughs> part of the ideology for me, which makes it interesting, is that it or part of, of, of its tool, utility to me personally, more than, let's say, the broader world of libertarianism. I use it as a journalistic tool. I think it's I think it's great to do political journalism from a libertarian point of view, especially if it's local reporting. My God, it's a great analysis. It's uh, it's a, it's an analysis of power structures. Right. And, it, and it's a built in kind of uh, skepticism. And it also makes the point. This is something I've, I've made a lot in my writing is that the very people who are loudest about not being ideological, not being partisans. You know, I'm just, I'm just here solving problems. They uh, oftentimes have the biggest ideology among everybody and, uh, and power. Um, so it's, I, I love uh, grappling with this kind of stuff. So long, weird answer, but that's how I got here. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like often the those that s- believe themselves to be the most unbiased are really just so biased to, towards their own ideology that they believe it to not even be biased. They believe it to just be the truth. Therefore, in their minds, they seem to actually be able to justify that they're, they're being unbiased in their what is obvious to anyone that doesn't share their view, a very biased, quote unquote, journalism. This goes into so much of the constant kind of misunderstanding or disconnect between journalists, particularly at places that try to uphold some kind of sense of, of fairness and journalists audience. And I, man, I've been, I've been writing and talking about this for 32 years and it's really hard to get my colleagues at newspapers to kind of see that, Hey, look, you're swimming in water. You know, uh, you might not feel it. You've been in that water your whole life, but that's water. And, and it, it has a certain temperature and tactility that's noticeable to other people. And even if your own motives in your own brain are pure, and I hope they are, I, I think I think it is really good to try to be as fair minded as possible and as thoroughgoing and all that kind of stuff. These are good values. I don't want to see those values go away, but that doesn't mean that you close ranks when someone, especially if they're a little bit unwashed uh, around the edges uh, and crude in their critiques, say, hey, look, you're all a bunch of biased people. And then I say to those people making those critiques, like, don't confuse bias with an agenda. Those are two very different things. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a losing battle to, uh, for media literacy on all, all fronts in my life. I wrote a, uh, my first uh, like sort of regular thing for reasons. I wrote a media column for them. And I've written media columns and participated in that kind of stuff. I used to write for the Online Journalism Review, Columbia Journalism Review, I think American Journalism Review, uh, all this stuff for a really long time. And I've kind of I guess the fifth column is kind of a media uh, criticism uh, podcast in many ways uh, that I participate in with my colleagues, Camille Foster, Michael Moynihan, and Anthony Fisher. So I still kind of do that, but I do that less than I used to because at some point I'm more interested in just kind of covering uh, news rather than constantly trying to uh, spread media literacy in a climate where people kind of want to retreat into mutual hostility faster on really all sides. You know, when I was in college, I actually began uh, by studying journalism. And one of the things that I was told in my classes was kind of referencing what we were discussing before is that you're supposed to be very unbiased. You're supposed to look at everything right down the middle. And I remember that just me thinking to myself, well, that's just ridiculous. So we all have biases. Uh, To me, it's dishonest to sort of just pretend that everything is coming from an unbiased perspective. The honest thing to do is to really reveal your biases and then say, you know, here's here's the, the perspective that I have. Here's why I hold this certain perspective. And I I quickly lost interest in journalism from an academic perspective. I I guess I always maintain the interest, and that's maybe in some ways what led to doing this podcast. But you mentioned that earlier that you you were expelled from college for bad grades. So it seems like you lost a little bit of interest from the academic aspect of it uh, as well. So I'm wondering if we could take back to that a little bit and explore that. What what was it about the academic side of things that you either, you know, you weren't excelling at, uh, you didn't take interest in it or what have you? But obviously it seems that being expelled was maybe the, the best thing to happened to you because it did lead to the rest of your journalistic career. Well, I should point out that UC Santa Barbara, where I went to school at the time, had uh, one of the five or so best college newspapers in the country. And one of its, it was you know, five days a week then. And one of its greatest characteristics was that it was completely untethered to any single journalism class or program or adult <laughs> or anything like that. It's because almost all, totally uh, perpetuated by the students themselves and trying to like figure out and hand down uh, knowledge and spread it and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I walked in there and I was blown away and I worked uh, my tail off and became uh, assistant news editor at AJ team, which hadn't happened before, I think. And 
I just stopped going to class. So <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't really, uh, it wasn't a big it mystery. Was a, a self-expulsion. So if you, uh, it turns out if you actually don't attend class, you will fail them. And that if you <laughs> fail enough classes, the university is less interested in keeping you around. So I ended up spending a year there before they kicked me out. I uh, spent a couple of years in summer school there. The last two years, uh, and then uh, one kind of fallen year uh, in between a couple of community colleges. Uh, the last two years of what, what I would refer to as my college experience, I worked at the same paper but they had a handful of uh, of university paid positions, so I was doing typesetting for the papers, so putting it to bed every night, like uh, you know, paste up and and typesetting and all this kind of stuff. The, the dark arts that have mostly been lost ever since. But I was still, so I was basically working with my same friends on the same paper, and you know, I was influencing the journalism of it, and in addition to the production of it, so I was doing the thing that I loved. And I was not going to chemistry classes, which I don't love, but I also had, you know, I'd screwed up, so I I put myself. One of the reasons why I ended up in Central Europe. Is that I was sitting around trying to figure out, okay, my contract is up in June of 1990. What am I going to do with my life? Because I've like, you know, I'm like halfway through my sophomore year. I've got like a 1.3 or something. Am I going to go back to some crappy state school that I don't really want to go to and sit in a class that bores me? What am I going to do? And I, I'd set aside, and this is the fortune of being born in 1968. I had set aside a period of time to make that decision, which was the Thanksgiving and Christmas breaks of 1989. Now, let's all put on our thinking caps. What was happening in Thanksgiving and Christmas of 1989? Something with a wall, maybe? or Communism was collapsing (laughs) on CNN, right? Like, And all of my options were terrible. They really, because there was a recession there, the beginnings of one. It was the first time at that moment, that uh, journalism, uh, newspaper industry started to finally go down after having 25% profit margins for 35 years. So all the options were bad. And then I was like, oh, hey, look, check it out. This is uh, people my age are overthrowing communism because they don't like being told what kind of rock music they want to listen to or bands <laughs> they want to be in. Maybe I'll go hang out with those guys. So uh, I was very fortunate in that respect. I'm curious how else your involvement in journalism helped to shape your political views. I know you didn't necessarily always consider yourself a libertarian. I know that uh, you know the label is not. I don't, I don't always embrace the label myself out there. But how did your involvement in your career shape your views along the way? I mean, it's fundamental to my views in ways that I have a difficult time communicating to other libertarians. This is a. a, a a strange. I've had this with uh, with I think uh, Michael Malice and Adam Kokesh and a few other people, and just you know, reason or, or uh, readers, listeners, whatever, who will say, well, yeah, you know, you're an, an uh, evangelist for libertarian ideas, and I'll say, no, actually, I'm not. It's part of the mission statement of reason, and I'm definitely someone who is helping fulfill the mission statement of reason and take it seriously to communicate libertarianism out there. But as a human being, as an individual little unit, I don't wake up in the morning thinking like, I am going to make my next door neighbor turn him into a libertarian. I don't. (laughs) What I try to do is to spread uh, to the best of my uh, limited ability and with, with all my flaws, add to the net amount of truth and usable, helpful insight, uh, which could just even be like, here's a way of thinking about, here's a way to organize your thoughts around something, even if your thoughts disagree with my thoughts. For I'll give you an example. A friend of mine uh, who I knew in Budapest uh, worked on a newspaper together out there. He read a book I wrote about John McCain from 2007, 2008, uh, the McCain, The Myth of a Maverick, 
which was a it, it was mostly a a kind of ideological portrait of uh, John McCain, at a, who at the time was not being portrayed ideologically. He was the classic, you know, he's just a a, a problem solver. He's yeah, he's an American hero. He's just going to get things done, that kind of stuff. So uh, my book went the other direction and and kind of like here's what he actually believes and also i think that a lot of those beliefs when applied uh, lead to really bad policies and wars and things like that so he reads this book and he's got a central european point of view which informs my own but isn't uh, my own and less and less over the years but central europeans especially in that part tend to be way more uh, interventionist way more positive towards kind of american hegemony because they they experienced it better than almost anybody else did they love ronald reagan they they thought that we were all fighting the good fight in the cold war calling the evil empire by its name and it mostly worked out for them from that point of view but anyways my friend uh, miklos said i read your book i really liked it and i after having read it i like john mccain more and would have voted for him and i'm like awesome that's what I'm here for. I'm, I'm here not to deliver your vote. I'm not here to cause you to change your mind. I'm, cause, I'm here to uh, deepen your understanding, your factual basis for wherever you go. And if I can get you in that way, maybe I will convince you of some aspects of, of things and I'll be happy to convince you of those things. But the root, the basis of my activity is to spread the net amount of, of truth and usable uh, insight there. I think that overlaps very well with libertarian being as it is largely a, a marginal or outside of, of the usual kind of power structures analysis or way of looking at things or ideology and, and what have you. And again, I think it, it is a, a useful way, especially to cover uh, politics and government, because it, uh, it forces you to ask all kinds of questions about the nature of why things are done uh, that uh, many people who are on the inside don't, it never occurs to them. But so I, I look at my mission as, as essentially journalistic. And I have this, this, this uh, faith, naivete, confidence, something like that. That in the process of doing that, if I do that job well, then yes, it will be more persuasive for people in ways that that will further the mission statements of reason and, and further you know the spread of libertarian ideas. But in order for me to do that the best, my primary motivation has to be about truth. Yeah, and I think whether it's if through journalism or just in our, our daily conversations with people, when it comes to politics, you're just a lot less likely to have success influencing someone if they believe you're trying to shove an ideology down their throats. Whereas if you're just trying to provide a different perspective or try to provide the truth as you see it, you're more likely for, to at least pique their interest in something and maybe get them looking at things in a different way. Whereas if you just push your own ideology down their throats, they're more like, much more likely to reject it and not even listening to you know a portion of what you're trying to communicate. So I come at things, I've, I've already uh, like uh, mentioned, you know, or, or cast aspersions on the kind of pragmatic worldview. But in, in compared to all libertarians, I'm way more pragmatic than most in, in, that, in the sense that I don't arrive here via the non-aggression principle or via, you know, a, a one sentence philosophical statement or anything like that. I just, I'm not philosophically moored as a person. This frustrates my anarchist friends, but that's just, that's where I come from. I, 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 I didn't get there from there. And so I'm not going to pretend to, to be that guy, although I'm more that guy as time goes on uh, for a variety of reasons. So but one of the, it's frustrating for for some people to encounter, let's say, uh, uh, me on television, and I will be on, you know, Fox doesn't really matter where MSNBC, and it might be something having to do with the SEC's way of regulating X, 
And there will be some times when I'll say, you know what? You know, what's the SEC doing? Why do we even have an SEC? But if you answer every question that way, if you answer every single question with like the fundamental, like line in the sand, uh, moral arguments of, well, we shouldn't even have X, you're going to be invited once. (laughs) (laughs) There is this fallen world that we live and play in. And yes, uh, sometimes, and maybe, maybe too often, maybe all the time, by participating in that world, by uh, I, I am or people like me are adding unnecessarily to its validity or its its uh, kind of uh, purpose of being there without too often scratching the the needle uh, across the record and saying, "Hold on a second, you got we got to like start from scratch here." So yes, but at the same time, a, a key part of reason, and this has been true, the magazine's been uh, out now for fifty years. But very early on in its history, they had to decide, are we going to be an outreach magazine? Are we going to speak to audiences who aren't libertarians and try to expose them to libertarian ideas? Or are we going to be an in-house newsletter, you know, fanning the flames and, and perfecting the ideology from within? Right. And we chose outreach. And that, that is completely copacetic with my worldview. So I try, to, I try to get people there. And it's not just on TV. It's in the green room uh, before and after too. Like we're, we're kind of working the levers there. It's, it's a great victory for me when I hear, when I get a host on a fill in the blank uh, cable network who you wouldn't expect to make a completely kind of libertarian setup for an entire segment. I'm like, all right, I, I won here. I don't even have to say anything. Right. But uh, uh, yes, long way of saying to engage in those kind of arguments in this kind of fallen world that we live in is a way that you get to keep being invited back. And so there's more of a libertarian voice than there would be otherwise if you just said, well, the government has no moral right to do X. Why are we even here? I'm curious how you go about sort of presenting yourself and working your way into becoming a mainstream pundit, being someone that they see as, I guess, acceptable to appear on their program while still, you know, sort of putting your views out there and trying to shift the conversation. Uh, have you, you know, sort of run into uh, any issues on that end or are you, do you find yourself, you know, pretty much welcome? You just seem to, to make a lot of appearances out there. Well, it's a, a thing that I'll hear a lot. And it's not just on MSNBC, although I, I've been doing more uh, there than than elsewhere uh, recently. But I, I would hear this, you know, almost ten years ago when I started doing this uh, in earnest. Like, oh, I never knew that I could like a libertarian or something along <laughs> those lines. Uh, <laughs> Where's your neck beard? Yeah, I, partly it's because I don't I don't force it into every conversation. That I'm happy to have a purely kind of journalistic analysis of things sometimes. Having you know co-hosted a, a TV show and uh, being sensitive to the needs of the medium, I appreciate the role that guests can play to just improve the overall overall quality of a broadcast and of the information being presented. So, I'm trying to think of, of, of an example. About nine months ago, there was some like Arizona lawmaker saying crazy thing type of story, (laughs) Um, which, uh, you know, it's evergreen. And they had the correspondent on from the ground talking about things. And I had prepared well enough, and I take journalism seriously enough, where I actually knew more than the correspondent on the ground. So instead of, of, of taking my time right there and saying, well, here's my clever libertarian argument for why you know, the government should be abolished uh, or, or whatever the, it might have been in that moment, and I don't remember really what it was. I think it was some kind of a, a semi-racial dispute or something. It was, I, I limited my time to, 
oh, actually, here's this new development to the story. Here is a way to correct what your correspondent just said without calling them amateurish, but you know, just to try to improve the overall quality. Hosts and producers really appreciate that. You know, there are, are times when I'll be on the set next to a an anchor and they'll be talking, they'll be interviewing a newsmaker remotely, a, a congressperson or something like that. And I will hastily scribble out a question and say, oh, I ask, ask this person that. Uh, there, there's a time when I did that on uh, uh, the Melissa Harris Perry show, which I used to love going on the weekends on MSNBC, which uh, might surprise people to hear that, but she was really a, a very interesting broadcaster and, uh, and she was very open to different ideas and conversations. But we had the, a family member of someone who'd been involved in a police, I think, death or, or some kind of a, a thing like that. And I, I really helped uh, in the moment ask, help her ask questions that ended up making news and making the, the segment much more worthwhile. I love doing that. I mean, it's just journalism. This is why I, this is what, what uh, got me to fall in love with this thing. 33 years ago, 32 years ago. So it's a combination of those things. I know that sometimes it's really great to bring an overhand, you know, right cross to the chopper uh, and scream at Stuart Varney on Fox Business uh, about like why, you know, you shouldn't make jokes about legal or about, uh, you know, stoners being arrested. And like, it's a don't ever you know, bore me with your uh, BS about limited government. If you believe putting 700,000 people in human meat lockers, because if you're, you're, you know, you do that too, but like to have a, to have a, a mix of approaches available to you, uh, knowing that you are putting yourself in position to help the producers and to help the, the anchors, I think uh, is the best way to, to do things. Hey, friends, I got to take a quick pause here to tell you about another great libertarian podcast out there. It's called Free Man Beyond the Wall, hosted by the artist formerly known as Mance Raider, now known simply by his real name of Pete Raymond. And I got to tell you, Pete is a machine. This guy brings you a new episode of his own every single Monday, Wednesday and Friday, and he has done some absolutely fantastic in-depth interviews. He's had on everybody from Ron Paul to Thaddeus Russell to Phil Labonte, the lead singer of All That Remains, a very diverse group of guests, not always libertarians. He also did a great show with a Washington, D.C. insider lobbyist revealing a lot of the dirt that goes on behind the scenes in D.C. He has done so many interviews that I have just said, darn, I wish I did this one myself. So I really do want to highly recommend checking out Free Man Beyond the Wall. You can find it over at freemanbeyondthewall.com, as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and all those fancy podcatchers out there. Matt, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the uh, the political arm of the libertarian movement, of course, the Libertarian Party, which you cover at Reason. And uh, at the LNC last year, the vice chair debate, you were, you were one of the hosts of that debate, and you asked a great question. It was based on something Tom Woods had said at the Mises Caucus event, and, and Tom stated something to the effect of that the Libertarian Party would be much better off getting one million voters who had their lives changed than 70 million voters who just, you know, maybe went to the boat, to the booth 
and ticked the box and and didn't really change their views too much. So I'm kind of curious where you fall on that position on on that strategy wise when it comes to the Libertarian Party. Should they be aiming to just get votes, get votes, get votes or to really just change the hearts and minds? That's uh, my classic punt on this is yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I mean, I don't think it's a punt. I think that that's any any realistic take on the situation would see that there's not necessarily a divide between one or the other here. You can, in fact, do both. It's just about the approach. And I think you kind of have to. It's uh, I once gave a talk. uh, Rand Paul uh, uh, was nice enough to invite me to come and speak to a bunch of interns on Capitol Hill. And the topic was, how do we get to libertarian social change? How do we achieve libertarian victories? And I forget exactly what I went through. I think I went through recognizing the Second Amendment as an individual right, gay marriage stuff, uh, weed legalization. And at, at that point, I think we were almost ready to declare some kind of small victory in, in like the U.S. not getting involved in shooting war in Syria, which Rand Paul had a lot to do with in, in 2013. Anyways, those and other ones, they all came about in like wildly different ways. There are people working this super long libertarian legal uh, game, 30, 40 year project of, of scholarship and a bunch of other things besides. There's I mean, Ellen DeGeneres has as much to do with why gay marriage is now uh, legally recognized and why we don't tolerate discrimination based on sexual orientation in uh, marriage things just because she came out in the 90s. And that was kind of a big deal. And, and like the culture changed. So there's so many different ways to do things. And I think there's so many different ways to do things electorally. And there's a, a mistaken tendency or a tendency that's a mistake to always be looking for the the Hail Mary, the big bomb, the one thing. I'm going to win the election. Uh, We're finally going to get our president uh, in, and that's going to change everything. Uh, I think uh, a lot of uh, libertarians have have flirted with, you know, prematurely loving mass political movements that didn't turn out to be their friends after after all. You're seeing this, I think, with the yellow vests in, in France and with Brexit and with other or with Hungary right now. I mean, to see a libertarian praise Victor Orban, a guy who I covered for three years in the mid-1990s, makes me want to vomit up a squirrel. He's <laughs> absolutely no friend to liberty or no friend to humanity. But so I think that even elect, even in the narrow field of electoral politics that the Libertarian Party has to play, you have to do it in a bunch of different ways. In fact, I like the fact that there are state uh, variants on this. I mean, uh, the Libertarian Party of Florida, they're all about like, yeah, screw the governor, screw Senate and stuff. We're going to get the, uh, the, the, the local water boards, the nonpartisan Mickey Mouse things. We're going to build from the ground up. I think that's great that there's a party that's focusing on that and that there's another state party, maybe Indiana, I don't know, who focuses on things a different way. I think that's all part of the blend. So since I am more, I tend to be more uh, like a pragmatic and a squish and a big tent and, and an outreach type of person, my natural inclination is to go in the direction of the 70 million votes or the wider possible thing rather than the white hot philosophical, like I'm going to change the way that you think about everything. But in fact, I really think that the ultimate thing in a Hayekian way of like, there is no one true way, that's even true within the narrow category of electoral politics. So you got to do it all kind of at the same time and keep yourself you know, semi-viable and semi in the game. And, and for all other things that the LP has done wrong, and for all the things that they're going to do wrong in the near future, I am confident it's the third party in America. That's an achievement. That is uh, something that's happened. And, it, and a great question right now that we're going to find out over the next 20 months is, is that what it is? Or did that just kind of coincide with 
some things that went in the LP's direction and might be undone. I tend to think that's where it's going to, to be and stay, but we don't know. Politics is in a weird place right now. Oh, well, let's explore that direction a little bit more because almost any conversation relating, relating to the Libertarian Party and 2020 over the last two years has involved the name Bill Weld. And you recently interviewed Bill Weld at LibertyCon. And uh, during the interview, he mentioned that he'll be involved in the Libertarian Party or he'll be involved in 2020, I guess is what he actually said. And he even referred to the Libertarian Party as we. And then I think it was like the next day is, is when it was reported that he had changed his registration to Republican. Now, in the, full disclosure, Disclosure, we're recording this prior to the, I guess, planned announcement that Bill Weld is going to make on uh, on the 15th. So by the time this airs, it will have already occurred. So maybe we can see uh, how good your predictive qualities are here. But what do you think of Bill Weld and where do you think he's going? Do you think this is all just a bunch of bruja over him supposedly switching his party registration? Or do you think he's actually going to do something which I think would be silly and crazy and try to primary Donald Trump? I mean, where do you think this is all going? My prediction is that he will announce on Friday, which is uh, February 15th at the Politics and Eggs Breakfast in New Hampshire, that he will uh, announce that he's intending to run uh, in the New Hampshire primary against Donald Trump as a way to to stop him and to challenge uh, and to have uh, uh, old-timey uh, Republican values or conservative values of free trade and a more open immigration system and et cetera, uh, be part of the national conversation. I think that he's doing this. If he wasn't doing this, he could have denied it already. You mentioned that I interviewed him on uh, uh, at, uh, at LibertyCon. He had changed his party registration two days before that interview. Oh, it was before that. Oh, I see. Two days before. Yeah, it's amazing. Did you know about that at the time or did that, that not come out? I did not. Week? And in fact, uh, to my discredit, I, there was some reporting that came. The first uh, article about him maybe thinking about going Republican came out a couple of days later, I think the Boston Herald and uh, on Twitter, I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's happening. Cause you know, I've, I've watched him on the libertarian party circuit for 15 months, you know, do endorsements. He was doing uh, uh, dozens and dozens of endorsements. He was speaking at various places. He was talking really specifically uh, using the Royal we, and I'm a libertarian for life. And I mean, I know he was a max donor on several libertarian campaigns. He was definitely getting involved heavily. And so, but in watching the Weld World comments to uh, the Boston Press and other people like that, I can easily see the mindset as being something like this. Look, no one else is running against him. <laughs> you know, John Kasich has a contributor deal for CNN. He might not, uh, he doesn't really sound like he's exactly there yet. Howard Schultz is still only talking about it as an independent, but there's no primary competitor. And there's a theory of the case both in terms of someone who could actually compete against him or someone who could hurt him. The theory of the, the, the hurt of the case is that every incumbent who faced a serious or at least a, someone to, uh, a challenger to make him sweat, you know, uh, Jimmy Carter in 1980 with Ted Kennedy, uh, Pat, uh, George H.W. Bush with Pat Buchanan in 92, Lyndon Johnson and uh, Eugene McGovern in 68. So all those incumbents either lose or quit. So someone needs to do the work to, to wipe him out. And also, we don't know what's going to happen with the Mueller investigation. Interesting to point out that Mueller used to work for Bill Weld. And so he's got his own kind of rule of law rap against Trump as well. Plus, Weld is from the Northeast, so he knows people in, in New England. And that theoretically could help him, though people have known him long enough that he's switched teams so many times that he's kind of uh, been the boy who cried wolf. And more importantly here, or most importantly, there's the calendar. Libertarians are going to decide their president in May 2020. 
We have a presidential campaign national that's completely underway right now. Howard Schultz is going to have a CNN town hall tonight. People are, are you know, falling over themselves on the Democratic side, endorsing the Green New Deal. Like it's on right now. So you could sit back on your hands and wait for the LP thing to come through. Or you could say, you know what? What happens if Trump gets like impeached and there's no one else running for president? Maybe I'll be the guy who ran for president. I'll be the only one there. Larry Hogan's not in there yet. Uh, no one else is in there. So I could see his theory of the case. Uh, and this is all speculative on my part. I haven't talked to him directly about that, but right. it's informed speculation because I know him and his world pretty well. You get to be in that conversation. And he loves being in the middle of conversations. And he probably thinks, and this is where I think he's probably wrong, he probably thinks that even if he does this and he becomes the splat on the windshield, which is the most likely outcome of any such thing for anyone running against Trump in the Republican primary, um, that he can maybe go back to the Libertarian uh, Party afterwards. He can't think that. Does he really think that? <laughs> um, it's possible that he thinks that he could do that at least for like a vice presidential uh, nod. I don't think that I don't think that that's a, a real thing. But again, uh, politics change. Politics are so dynamic right now. We have no idea what this all is going to look like. So, you know, maybe there's a possibility that you or I can't fathom of him being welcomed back. But I'd see a lot of libertarians like, no, not again. Well, no, especially because, I mean, after his whole statement that he was a libertarian for life, he's not going anywhere. I mean, to switch and come back again would just be just be mind blowing. But I suppose anything's possible nowadays. Yeah. Matt, one more thing I wanted to ask you about, but before I, I leave off with you here, and I, I know you don't really get too directly involved in politics in, in the activity sense. You're not a member of the party, or as far as I know, or you're not involved in any way outside of journalism. But I'm curious if you were not a journalist, if you maybe never became a journalist, but still became a libertarian, or maybe you just retire from reason tomorrow for whatever reason, what sort of libertarian activism could you see yourself involved in if you had no journalistic ties at all? That's really interesting. I would guess that it would uh, have something to do with criminal justice reform uh, type of, of efforts, uh, just trying to get individual people out from the crosshairs of uh, unsupportable, as the French would say, insupportable, uh, carceral state, uh, individual acts of injustice. If we can, in journalism too, I mean, reason we helped get a guy off death row, and, and uh, that's uh, one of the uh, proudest uh, accomplishments of the organization during my tenure there. If we can actually just improve a single person's life and get like Ross Ulbricht out of jail, you know, if, if we can, if we can do things like that to tangibly uh, reverse an injustice and free a human being, that speaks to me on a fundamental level. I think that we should all be doing more of that. And, uh, and I probably even have some guilt that I don't spend more time on such things. So if I was going to be, you know, professionally libertarian and not a journalist, it would be like that. But if I'm being honest, if I wasn't doing journalism, I'd be like playing like shitty Chicago songs in some like, <laughs> in upstate New York. Uh, I, I would be the world's worst like cover band musician and uh, drink myself to death. Well, you know, there's still plenty of time, Matt. So I look, you know, it's, it's important to have goals. <laughs> Don't let your dreams die. That's my advice. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute blast having you on. I'm sure I'd love to have you back once again down the road, especially uh, as we continue to cover the uh, always interesting Libertarian Party races and politics and all that great stuff. So it's been a pleasure having you on. Before I let you go, why don't you just give a little wrap up of how people can find you on social media, your work at Reason. Feel free to plug away on anything else you got going on. Great. So thank you again for this conversation. Really Absolutely. fun and started dr drone on. 
So find me at Reason. Reason.com uh, is there, uh, as hopefully you all know. And you can follow Reason on Twitter, at Reason. My Twitter of, uh, follow is at Matt Welch. Also, I'm part of the uh, uh, Fifth Column uh, podcast, which you can find at We the Fifth, spell out fifth. And that's uh, it's, it's good enough for starters out there. I write a monthly column for the LA Times, but I link to that at, uh, at my own feed. So you start there and say hi and say howdy and, and, uh, and make me laugh on Twitter and uh, I will uh, follow you and, and we can all be friends. Matt, thanks so much for coming on. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Thank you, man. All right, kids, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matt Welch as much as I did. And uh, it turns out his prediction was accurate, as you all know. Bill Weld did, in fact, announce that he is running for president in the Republican primary against Donald Trump. Personally, I I don't know if that's going to go anywhere or really be really of any interest to libertarians other than the fact that at one point two years ago for a brief period in time uh this uh gentleman happened to call himself one but uh, as we do with everything uh you know one of the most fun times in our lives uh honestly i think we all agree on this that those of us that are active in this podcast my fellow hosts as well as uh rico howie and jb were when we were covering the presidential debates in 2016 it was kind of close to uh you know not that far away from the beginning of the podcast we're probably uh i don't know i guess we're kind of podcasting teenagers at that point, I, I would say. And uh, we watched every single Republican debate, every single Democratic debate. We did a ton of podcasts about them, and we are absolutely going to be doing that uh, in this coming election season. There have been 20 Democratic debates announced. I'm not kidding. 20 Democratic debates I don't know exactly the form that our coverage will be in, but they will likely be in the form of libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor style roundtables where we discuss, you know, whatever goes on at these debates. Exactly whose show they'll be on, we don't really know. Uh, some of that might be in the form of live streams that, you know, only the Patreon people can access at first and perhaps they'll be released uh, later on. We don't know, but when that schedule comes out, uh, we're going to put our brains together and start figuring out how we're going to provide you the libertarian drunken takes on election coverage that you you have come to know and love from us. So stay tuned for all that in the coming year. And if you just can't get enough Lions of Liberty, well, check out our Patreon. Once again, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty, where we'll have all sorts of bonus content, including, I'm sure, uh, a lot of coverage and and behind-the-scenes stuff uh, related to our coverage of those Democratic primary debates. And, of course, don't forget to tune in this coming Wednesday to my man Brian McWilliams and his Wonderful, wonderful, lovely, lovely, not as curse-filled as it used to be program, Electric Liberty Land, as well as John wrapping things up this coming Friday with his incredibly hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system. And don't forget, today's episode of Lions of Liberty has been brought to you by MathBot.com. The pen may be mightier than the sword, but code is even mightier than the pen. You can learn how to build the tools that will bring prosperity and freedom to the world by learning how to code over at MathBot.com. That's MathBot.com. Become mighty, my friends. And until next time, live long and live free. <laughs>